Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Today I'm joined by Michaela Thomas. Michaela is an experienced clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of the Thomas Connection. She has special interests in qualities many of us ambitious psychologists and therapists know a lot about, such as perfectionism and balancing working life with parenthood. She's also a speaker and author of The Lasting Connection, a book about developing compassion for yourself and your partner. Michaela's mantra is balance over burnout, so I am very, very keen to learn from her today. Welcome to the podcast, Michaela. Thank you very much for having me. So can we get started with you telling us a little bit about what you do and how you help people? Of course. So I work exclusively in private practice these days. Uh, my background is having worked in IAPT for a number of years before that. And it was my own experience of burnout in, in an IAPT service that made me feel I took the plunge to move into private practice fully. So I run a clinic called the Thomas Connection, hence you know, Michaela Thomas, the Thomas Connection. And we provide one-to-one therapy, online courses, workshops, retreats, uh, supervision, and I run my own podcast and write books. So I'm kind of a multi-hyphenated person, which is how I love working. But I've tried to very carefully practice what I preach as I work with a lot of high striving, ambitious people, um, often perfectionistic people. So I very carefully try to plan my working day and my working week and the projects I take on in a way that makes it sustainable for me. So that compassion is a, kind of a key, key word that runs in the background when I work. I think that's so important because it's really easy. I use a lot of compassion focused therapy in my work and it's really easy to talk about it all day and then get home and just make the decision to reconcile your accounts while you're watching telly rather than doing some yoga or or taking care of yourself in any way. Um, But what led you to want to focus on ambitious people and perfectionism? I guess, you know, the old old saying of it takes one to know one. (laughs) Um, It's sort of of emerged for me slowly, gradually over the years. And um, there's a there's a coach called Lucy Sheridan who often talks about following the breadcrumbs when uh, in terms of your your branding and figuring out what the message you want to stand for and I just sort of followed the breadcrumbs that you know we do know from the research around perfectionism that it's on the rise that it's increasing quite quite exponentially actually um, and that's why I thought you know I'm following this this message that these busy stressed out anxious depressed people were giving me. So that's happened over the years of working in IAP services where I often noticed that people would come for a depressive episode or uh, feeling really anxious, feeling social anxiety or OCD. Um, and when you scratch the surface, you realize that, you know, a 12 session protocol of CBT is not going to cut it here. There's this, you know, it's even maybe developmental trauma or emotional neglect or, you know, attachment issues a lot of things that started very early on and it wasn't enough to just address it with CBT. And don't get me wrong, I am, you know, I've got double qualifications in CBT as a model I'm very familiar with, but I found that I needed something more. And that's where I sort of fell towards the compassion work because of how Paul Gilbert has, has emphasized that those who are high in, in levels of shame and self-criticism do not necessarily uh, respond so well to CBT approaches for anxiety and depression. So I felt that incorporating the the compassion work in in treating perfectionism 
got much better results. So how much therapy work do you find yourself doing these days? Because like you said, you're very multi-hyphenated, got a really impressive CV. Are you still mostly working one-to-one or do you find the, the group stuff that you offer more effective? I do a bit of both. And that's, you know, I remember getting a question from one of my one of my friends in my network who sometimes refers to me, he, uh, he was renting space in my therapy room. She asked me a few weeks ago, saying, Michaela, don't you find yourself really zoomed out after seven hours of client work per day on Zoom? And I'm like, no, because I don't do seven hours of therapy per day on Zoom. <laughs> That's the bit that I've had to really consciously choose to let go of and calibrate my income so that I'm not bound to just doing effectively what I did in IAPT. There was a reason why I left IAPT to work in private practice so that I could calibrate my day-to-day to fit the way I needed to work in order to live. So I probably do no more than eight client sessions uh, a week, something like that, in the four days that I'm working. So one day a week, I am off with my, my son. Um, so that's probably about four days a week. And then that's how I've managed to write a book. That's how I managed to start a podcast. So, so you kind of have to look behind the scenes and ask people, how many hours are you doing? So if you, you know, some of my supervisees might say, you know, I do 25 sessions a week. I don't have the time to follow my ideas and my passions. Well, no, of course not, because you're going to be very, very used up in terms of the energy you have to give is our work is very strenuous both mentally and um, emotionally and physically so no I, I think that's important to hold in mind that I need to balance my my week's work so that I can also take steps forward with things that I want to get out in the world I couldn't have created an online course had I not also lowered the one-to-one therapy that I do so there's a couple of things to consider there either you take initially take a bit of a cut in terms of the income you get or you raise your fees so you can afford to see fewer people for the same amount of money so it's a bit of money mindset coming into that that's probably bigger than just this podcast episode but that's something i've had to consciously consider a lot because i knew that in order to walk in line with my values around mental health awareness and spreading and disseminating this message i needed to free myself away from just the one-to-one otherwise i would never be able to provide things like online therapy for free, right? So I can, I'm creating a, a couple's compassion course at the moment where I've already given it away to someone who is in need, who has a very low income, thinking actually you can just get a discount code or you can get where you can access it for free or a discounted rate because I'm not trading away my time for money. So I can afford to do that. So people who are qualifying for that, I can give away free, free stuff. It's not therapy, it's an online course, but I can't do that when I just work one-to-one. Even when I was doing some pro bono or um, discounted rate sessions, there still wasn't enough to meet the need. And that's the bit that I've realized over the years of, of having business coaching with, uh, with Wendy Kendall of how we pivot psychological services to meet the, the greater psychology need. Yeah, I think we've had a very similar path. That sounds almost exactly like my journey. I ended up coming out of the NHS, replicating a very busy burnout kind of service um, where I was seeing, I think, the worst. It was about 27 clients a week. Yeah. Realized I wasn't meeting any of my values um, working in that way um, and had to make that really tough call about, you know, reducing the hours therefore having to put up the fees, dealing with a myriad of money mindset issues, um, but kind of coming out of the other side and seeing that 
the upside of high fees is that I can provide low cost services for people who need them. And I couldn't do that before. No, no. And that's where you need to think about meeting your business goals first and thinking about creating a sustainable business before you start giving things away. Because otherwise, you know, you work to live, not live to work. And that's really hard to do when you're not getting sustainable income coming through. Um, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about passive income streams at the moment and people assume that they're sort of just were you completely passive well it's, it's not because what you have to do to get passive income streams is also to do a lot of digital dig, digital marketing uh, like being on Instagram or uh, Facebook or LinkedIn and that isn't you know that doesn't that takes time as well so that's how I structure so my week time. to do a lot of that as well or uh, podcast interviews or speaking engagements so people wonder you know if you only see eight clients a week what do you do for the rest of the time of your over your four days well I'm pretty busy you know I'm pretty full but I don't do business for the sake of business I still mm. I still try to take breaks throughout the day you know I've, I incorporate the boundaries that I I tell my clients to set for themselves you really have to practice what you preach as much as you can and psychologists are frankly really bad at that I couldn't agree more. And I think when we start stepping into passion projects, um, like, you know, do more than therapy for me, that is a real passion project. I, I care so deeply about that, that I have this energy that means I could work on it all night. Mm. <laughs> but it doesn't, that doesn't serve me, it doesn't serve my clients, it doesn't serve my family. And ultimately, it probably doesn't serve the members either if I do that. No. So you do have to put those boundaries in around it. But I also love what you're saying about being realistic about how long projects take, how much time. I think I, I keep meaning to do a podcast episode actually on what it has taken for me to build the membership of the Do More Than Therapy Facebook group. So I think we're, we're nearly 1,300 members now. And the hours of work that that took, because I didn't have budget for Facebook ads in the early days, now I'm using Facebook ads and, and stuff is getting a little bit less time intensive, but I suppose how many hours did I put into learning those? But it, it is, it's a serious piece of work to do that. You have mm. to put yourself out there and be in a lot of places. And if you're not doing that in working time, I think it's a recipe for burnout. It really is. And it's also knowing that any of those things that are going to open doors for you long term is a delayed gratification game like you're mm. writing a book i can't think of anything that is more delayed gratification because you sit there and write and write and write and it's going to come out like two years after you first hatched your idea so it's but something like that it's obviously where you leverage your time better and you don't you know you get seen as more of an expert in the field or you strengthen your position of someone who who knows their stuff and that is also super scary for psychologists who are very prone to imposter syndrome and doubting our own worth and doubting our own capabilities so that's where i think my work around perfectionism has really served me because i can kind of like ah notice that that's the inner critic coming out again or noticing I'm really getting caught up in some stories around not being good enough or stories around failure and that's my kind of work around ACT and CFT has really helped me to support myself through that journey because it's not easy to write a book and it's not easy to sort of start a podcast or any of those things as I'm sure you know as well so we really have to practice what we preach and start to do that work from the inside out yeah, I completely agree. I, I honestly don't think I'd be here behind this microphone if I didn't use ACT and CFT in my work. I think learning that has been transformative for me as a person. 
um, let alone as a clinician. So you've mentioned there a little bit about what drove you to put the effort in to write the book, The Lasting Connection. Could you talk a little bit more about, you know, what you were hoping to get out of that and what it brings now to your private practice? Sure. And obviously the book isn't out yet. It's still out on pre-order. So it comes out end of January 2021. But already it started to give me an opportunity to have conversations with people. And obviously having branded myself as the Thomas Connection, I love having conversations with people, not just with my clients, but I, I like building connections with others. So that has given me a chance to just go into someone's DMs or direct messages for those who are not really into Instagram lingo to, to drop a message into someone's inbox or someone I follow on, on Instagram or uh, on LinkedIn and just start a conversation saying, you know, I'm, I've got this book outcome soon and it makes it easier to, to drop a pitch for someone's podcast to become a uh, podcast guest or to invite other people onto my podcast. So both the book and the pause purpose play podcast has opened doors for me to just have conversations with people. And it's not just about thinking, Oh, that means I'm scaling my business or I'm growing my business. I'm having some really interesting conversations with people that makes me feel enriched. That feels like I'm starting to build like a virtual team of, of people around me for private practice can be really lonely. If you're sitting alone in your chambers, especially now when we're working from home, then if you don't have those sounding boards and collaborators, it can be really lonely. So I've, I feel that it's, it's opened that door for me where I can then bounce ideas of others. And, you know, I, I listened to a podcast the other day um, with a perfectionism researcher, Thomas Curran, and then I just dropped him a message saying, you know, would you be happy to have a conversation with me? And, and that started a, a new connection. So just because we're, you know, like-minded people out there and we're all facing similar struggles of getting our work out there and we're stronger together. I really firmly believe that. Yeah, me too. And I, I think this podcast has, has done a lot of that for me. There's been a lot of people I've met through this who I'm sure somewhere down the line will collaborate on something or I could, you know, call them if I had an issue with something that I knew they were an expert in that I'm not. Mm. And it really does give you that feeling of community. Uh, but I love the idea of being able to use your book almost like a business card to like fully introduce yeah. yourself to people so they get what you're about. I love yeah. that. Yeah. And it also means that you're more likely to be invited to review other people's books as well, because then, you know, that could be on the sleeve cover, say Michaela Thomas, author of The Lasting Connection, gives a sense of, of credibility to, to your words. And obviously we have to be careful because, you know, anyone can write a book in a sense. So we have, you know, authorship doesn't automatically make you, make you an expert. But I think there are more psychologists who are self-doubting and self-critical than there are the ones that have hubris. So I think we, we don't have to worry too much about people whose narcissistic tendencies, although there are some people out there as well. But I think it's more likely that you, if you're listening, that you're holding yourself back thinking, oh, I don't have enough to say to write a book or to get on someone's podcast than it is that you're saying, I've got so much to talk about and I, my opinion is the only valid one. I, don't th I think that's less likely. I kind of have a fantasy because I've written ebooks, but I've not written a full length book and I really want to. And I think I kind of have this fantasy that if I did, I'd learn a lot by doing it because I would hunt down the very latest papers and it would force me into a discipline of, of reading more regularly as well as writing. Mm. Was that part of your process? How was writing it? 
Yes and no. And this is going to be sort of uh, me disclosing my own inner critical uh, process and, ha and how I work with my inner critic. I, I wrote a book for the general public. So I very consciously chose to step away from some of the academic language and sort of scientific terms to try to make it more approachable because I wanted to I wanted to write a book that sounded like how I would speak to couples if they sat on my sofa that's why there's some sections that are called from the sofa which are sort of clinical examples uh, and also why I've included my story in it so in each chapter there's kind of a section which is my story about things I've faced or things I've struggled with only a little paragraph and as I was going through this, I first started thinking I'll read everything and anything about couples and compassion. And I had a, a trainee when I was working in um, Geisel St. Thomas Hospital. Uh, I was running the CBT clinic there and I had a lovely trainee, Joanne, if she's listening, who went and did lots of kind of literature searches for me and brought me everything. And I started reading it. And you know what happened was that I became utterly paralyzed. She's thinking... Mm oh, other people have already done this. Other people are already speaking about this. So I, I kind of overcame that, had, you know, had a, a calming talking to with my inner critic and said, I, I get it. I completely get that you don't want to just steal someone else's work and so on. So it's been a little bit back and forth, but I found that the bits that I read most of has been other people's books, much more than the literature um, in terms of research article. Because when I started reading a few research articles and summarized the results, I lost that voice. Because I don't actually drop in research articles when I sit in therapy. I don't know how many psychologists do. That, that's the stuff that informs my practice. But that's not the stuff I need to tell you about. So what yes. I tell people about is how you do this in common terms. Mm. Right. So whilst I stopped myself reading more research. And frankly, because there wasn't so much out there on compa compassion and couples. But I stopped reading lots and lots of it. Because then if you, the first chapter in my book is called What is Love? Right. And when I started writing that, firstly, I couldn't write it without thinking, what is love by Hadaway in the back of my head. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was a block for a while. Um, and then I got into like, oh my goodness, what is love? Like, how can I answer a million dollar question that poets before me and Greek philosophers haven't answered? So I had to rein it in. And it was my supervisor, um, Sarah Corey, who said, you don't have to write the definitive book on couples you just have to write a book on couples. And that freed me up to thinking, I'll just write my book on couples. I won't be able to capture all the research. I won't be able to have, you know, a reference list that is longer than your arm, but I'll write everything I've learned and everything I want to say to my couples who come and see me. And that's how the book was born. Yeah, it's almost like you need to have the evidence base floating around in your head and then you just kind of put all of that down and focus and write for one person. I think so much of writer's block is about not knowing who you're writing to. And it sounds like you had a really clear vision of I'm writing to my couples, the people who come and sit on my sofa. Yeah, definitely. And that made it easier because I can then tolerate alienating some people who wouldn't come and see me or you know a lot of people don't necessarily come for therapy but they might read blog posts about it or listen to a podcast about it I was trying to speak to the people who are interested in personal development who wanted to know the people who wanted to invest in their marital or relationship uh, satisfaction so daring to, to alienate people is also a really important part of marketing to actually write a message that you know is not going to resonate with everyone is really really important and that, but that was a big process part of me thinking of what are the clinicians in the field going to think what are the um 
what are the researchers going to say that I've not captured this properly? And, you know, it is a a huge sort of mental challenge. There's a lot of those sort of little gremlins in your head saying stuff at that point. So I just had to watch those stories as well and let them emerge and come and go. That sounds like really good advice because I think, you know, even when I've thought about writing a book, I've often stopped before I've started because of those exact stories. You know, what will my peers think of me being a particularly strong one? And in Do More Than Therapy, we are doing a free blogging challenge at the end of October. And what inspired me to do that was that when I was um, researching for a blogging course I'm running in the membership, the majority of people were telling me I can't even get started because I'm so worried about what other people are going to think or I just don't know quite what to say. Mm. And I thought, right, that's something that I just want to do for free for a week just over five days I'm going to get people publishing something and get over that initial block Mm. Um, and I think that's the key to it it's thinking you know who am I writing for and what is this not as well as what is it yeah yeah and it's really important to to take that wisdom from others and learn from what how others do and just getting started and you know my book wouldn't have been born had it not been from the support of the multiple supervisors I've gathered over the years I seem to collect supervisors I, mm-hmm. I think it's one of the most crucial things about building your business is to have the right support around you the ones that will meet you in that time of need and talk you off the edge and say actually it, it is good enough uh, and I remember you know one of my supervisors Joe Oliver um when I was starting to write, he said to me, I, I give myself the permission to sit down and write shit. And you, you know what amazing books he's published by now. So yeah. I just did that. I just didn't remember what Joe said, sit down and write shit. So I sat down and started writing shit. And then you go back and edit and edit and edit. So there's, there's lots of wisdom from others having walked the same journey. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Ask around. There's, in, our, in our community of psychologists, there's a lot of people who've published uh, you know, research if you want to go into research or written books if you want to be an author. So ask them about their process. So we, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants in that sense that I, I definitely can't take all the credit for this book having been born. It's definitely something that's come out of multiple coaching or supervision discussions where I've had a bit of a tumble and my inner critic uh, got into the driving seat. Then, um, then I reached out for support and talked it through. I also had a book coach as I wrote it as well, to help me understand the process of, you know, getting the skeleton and putting the meat on the bones. But also beyond that, it's not just about writing the book. It's also how you use it as a way to launch your business, how you use it to open your doors. And that's just stuff I didn't know. I have no experience of the publishing industry. Uh, I'm not an editor. So speaking to, uh, to the book coach and to a friend of mine who works for a publishing house has really helped me um, understand how I can leverage this book and and what I need to do to promote it. Yeah, sometimes it's just really important to recognize where we do have skills gaps, where there is stuff that we don't know. Because I think quite often what can happen is we can start out a project that doesn't quite go as we planned. And then we look back and we go, oh, well, I must not be good enough then. I'm a Mm. failure then. Um, I'm rubbish. Nobody wants what I've got to say. When Mm. actually it might be that you should have hired a book coach or you should have hired a marketing coach or you should have found a supervisor who specialized in in that field because you just haven't quite got the knowledge you needed it's Mm. not that what you've got to say isn't valuable yeah yeah absolutely it's that growth mindset of i don't know how to do this yet 
So what do I need to support myself to be able to do this? And I think when you run a company of one, like I do, and I have one associate, but it's essentially me. Otherwise, um, it's really difficult because you can't wear all those hats. There's no chance of you being the administrator, the the practice manager, the, you know, the, you can't do all of that at once. So for me at this point, it's also learning to outsource the tasks that are not the most meaningful use of my time. So when people ask, you know, how, how do you do it all? Well, I, firstly, I do fewer clinical sessions. And, and secondly, I also spend some of the money coming in onto outsourcing it to others. Like I have a podcast editor for my podcast that we talked about before we started recording. And that does cost me money, but it means it's one thing that I'm not very good at that she's obviously expert on because that's what she does for a living. I can outsource that. And the the time I spend uh, or save on that, I can spend on other things like content creation or book writing or uh, recording of podcast episodes, essentially doing the things that nobody else could do with my voice. That's the bit you really need to spend your energy and time on in your business if you want to scale it and grow it. Yeah, and I think often there's a bit of resistance to that because it is investment upfront. Yeah. And that that can feel really frightening. And I think, you know, I, I've listened to business podcasts before and I've been on, on webinars and trainings where people have said things like, Oh, well, you know, wait until you've got a certain amount of money coming in and, and then you can hire a VA. And actually I really advocate for the other way around because I think we have specialist skills. And, you know, in one hour using your specialist skills, you can earn enough to pay that VA. But if you haven't got time to give that hour, you're just going to get stuck in this loop of burnout, really. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's wisdom that I remember my sister who who works in much more sort of, you know, she works in sort of financial things. And she even said that, like the first thing I remember her saying when I started my business about six years ago, she said, do the things you're good at and outsource the rest. And I'm like, actually, it's a piece of wisdom that I've carried with me this whole time. And I still butt heads against it. I still resist it when that sense of I should be able to do this shows up. And I have to have a good talking to myself at that point and thinking, why are you resisting this? Why are you trying to do this yourself? And sometimes I give myself the opportunity to try it. I'm like, okay, go on then. You know, if you think you're really good at this, go ahead, sit here and spend three hours trying to research which webcam to buy <laughs> or, you could have asked you, or you could have asked your VA to do it um, and that would have been better. So sometimes I have to just allow myself to, to not practice what I preach just to reinforce why I should practice what I preach. Uh, if you see what I mean, that allowing myself to fall off the wagon a bit and make mistakes because every single time I do, it, it reinforces that actually it was the right thing to do to outsource it. Mm. Yeah, I think I very rarely hear people who regret something that they've outsourced. But I hear people who are stuck in this, oh, maybe I'll outsource, but oh, it's too much money, I'm not going to. I hear those people get stuck for a very long yeah. time. Apart from the perfectionists who regret outsourcing things because they struggle to delegate um, and they might find flaws or faults with the things that comes back. So that's, that's where I think if, if you are listening to this and you feel that you are maybe identifying with being quite perfectionistic, which again, not your fault. Today's society promotes people being quite perfectionistic and it is on the rise. And we know that psychologists are quite, quite prone to perfectionistic schemas and self-sacrificing schemas. If you are listening to this and think, actually, that's me, I struggle to delegate or I don't dare to ask for help, know that it's probably going to be a bit of a, a process for you um, of accepting the result that comes back or saying, I don't really like this. Can you change that? And it's going to be really hard to set those boundaries 
and being really careful with how you send a brief off. You know, what is it that you actually want? So spending the time to think it through before you just say, help me do this for me. But it's, it's hard. It's something that I see in a lot of psychologists that I supervise that they sort of struggle on their own and think, I'm just going to, I'll do all my admin on the weekend or I'll pull, uh, I'll just do an evening clinic where I just finish all of this. Um, and it's, it's not the most beneficial way of working and you will eventually end up feeling resentful. Yeah. And I think when we've got those really strong self-sacrificing stories, accepting that about yourself, that you're a human and you will resent it if you're working loads of hours mm. and spending a lot of that time doing stuff that is not in your zone of genius to use an American term, you yeah. will resent that because you are a person. You're not a superhero. You're not a machine. No. That can be really hard for people. Yeah, it really can be. And especially in the current times where we know that, you know, the pandemic is here, that's a, as a global issue, but we also know there's going to be a mental health epidemic after this that I don't think it's even really hit yet. Uh, I can see that's more and more people coming now, but for the past six months, people were just frantically trying to survive. They didn't feel it was the right time to pursue personal therapy. And we know that from the IAP services, they're starting to pick up, but they've had a real slump in terms of number of referrals. So this is coming, it's going to hit, and you need to find a way to work in a sustainable fashion so that you don't burn out trying to help those people who are burnt out. Yeah, absolutely. I'd completely echo that. I'd say my phone has been off the hook for the past fortnight um, after being kind of steady for the rest of this pandemic. And I do think that that's partly because survival mode gets you through. That's what it's for. Yeah. But after six months, that's wearing a bit thin yeah. and the uncertainty of the messaging as well at the moment. I think it's, that's really hit home for people that actually this is going to go on for quite a long time and we don't know how, how it's going to look. Yeah. There's no promises about a normal Christmas anymore. No, absolutely. And, and people who felt that they can kind of get through until September mm. and the kids went back to school. And then two weeks into that, they realized, Oh, there could be another lockdown. And that's been a huge wobble for a lot of the clients I support in terms of their mental well-being, knowing that I can't take another round of this. It's almost like we thought we came to the end and here's round two and we just got nothing left to give. So, yeah, I think we are, we are yet to see all the long term impact uh, of of the trauma in, say, first line um, staff, people who have been out there dealing with all of this, uh, the loss of people having lost loved ones, but also, you know, I personally can resonate with that of not being able to see my loved ones and not seeing my family for nine months. And it's probably not going to be until some point next year now. So it's because they live in Sweden. So I think there's a lot to come and we need to find ways to tailor our psychology practices so that we can do that. So we can meet the need, but also meeting our own need. We so often want to kind of get into this sort of Jesus complex or savior complex where we, think I just need to do everything I can to meet this need but if you are burnt out then you you cannot really serve as effectively mm. so for people that listen to this and they recognize like this is me I'm really struggling with perfectionism I've, I've got a bit of a savior complex um what would be your practical advice for for helping them Goodness me, uh, have we got an hour? Uh, the practical <laughs> things would be, I guess, get yourself clued up on compassion work because 
just reading affirmations and mantras can be great and say like you know be kind to yourself and things like that but we often know that's not really going to sink down into the emotional level so you do need to do the work you do need to put that into compassionate action to actually change things in your life it's not enough to just say um i I matter too when you treat yourself as if you don't so if you look at your week and you know that you don't take lunch breaks or you you don't really move your body in any way you just sit down in front of zoom and do your client sessions and then at the end of the day you know you're so exhausted that you have to sit and drink wine or eat all the chocolate and no there's no judgment we've all been there you know i was openly talking about my 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 kit kat experience of lockdown but if that is you, then actually thinking about how do you walk the walk and not just talk the talk? Because we, most of us today, talk about that to our clients, how important it is to look after ourselves. We know body and mind is well connected. But if you don't actually put something into, into practice, nothing's going to be different for you. So I would think about one small thing you can change, much like we would say to our clients you know, one habit that you can introduce, like say in the morning, I'm going to drink one glass of water before I sit down to Zoom, or I'll take a five minute walk around the house in between my sessions or something like that, where you think about maybe scheduling your sessions so they aren't back to back so you can get up and move. Or my top favorite one is, is standing up in the middle of your session, making sure you're wearing appropriate clothes on the bottom bit of your body if you want to zoom <laughs> yeah. but doing these things with your clients so giving yourself an opportunity to also look after yourself when you are with your clients like have a glass of water you know by the computer so that you take a sip of water and you show to them that you know it's okay for me to also look after myself i can't I'm not just here to serve you i'm also here to show you that i look after myself too so that's mm-hmm. probably be my first tip of something that is tangible and easy to implement because we know that lofty ideas are harder to put into practice and they don't become sustainable when we make them all or nothing in a kind of perfectionistic way like okay from tomorrow i'm gonna have you know i'm gonna gaze into this into the sunrise and i'm gonna go for a five mile run and you know all of these sort of morning rituals things that are so popular at the moment oh i know i tried a miracle morning for like five days yeah i've got two kids under the age of three (laughs) <laughs> yeah, my miracle morning is if I don't get kicked in the face. So yeah. uh, it's, I think we have to be realistic and meet ourselves where we're at when we try to put things into practice. And I think there's a risk of today's society of where some psychology messages become too lofty and don't meet people where they're at. And they get really pissed off with people speaking to them with all of these wellness messages, like almost we talk about toxic positivity that we really need to meet them where we're at. You know, it's really hard right now. It is tough. Being a, being a psychologist right now is also really tough. We're holding the emotional weight of all of those we serve as well as our own emotional weight or whatever is on our, uh, on our life agenda. So actually go easy on yourself and pick one thing you want to make a change with and then that will ripple. So I often talk about planting that one acorn, but you can't expect the oak tree to grow tall and strong overnight. Oh, I could not agree with that more. I found hashtag toxic positivity on Instagram and I was like, oh, this is my people on Instagram. This is what I need to be sharing because there's so much of that around. And And actually, I think it is really valuable to our clients to see that, you know, in a boundaried way that we do suffer too and that we take steps to alleviate that suffering where we can. 
Um, I used to be able to model this to my clients a bit better when we worked in person. Um, not deliberately, I should add, but I had a therapy room where there was a shower in the building. Mm. So I used to take the opportunity to always go out for exercise at my lunch break, which meant that whoever saw me in my afternoon clinic, I, my skin, I'm very, very pale. For anyone who hasn't seen me, I'm like the, the whitest of white, which means that when I go red slash purple, which I do when I run, it takes a long time for my capillaries to recover from that. <laughs> so even like I'd run at 12 and say my 2 p.m. client would be like, oh, have you been out for a run? Like, How can you still tell? <laughs> yeah. Um, but they always could. And so they would know that I took that time for myself, that I never worked through my lunch break. Um, and that's not something I implemented in the first year of my practice. Mm. I'll admit it. It took me getting very close to total burnout. Uh, I often describe myself as burned out to a semi-crisp. <laughs> yeah, it's nice um, way of describing it. <laughs> yeah, I was a semi-crisp. And then I realized that I, I just wasn't walking the walk and I needed to start doing that. And yeah, it was a really happy benefit of that, that my mm. clients started to notice and comment on it. And I guess, yeah, learn from it. That yeah, yeah. it meant I didn't look particularly polished. Um, but that didn't matter really. And that's so important though when we think about that sense of purpose and passion of what we really want to pursue and and do more of and when you start a new company or a new business idea that can be really overwhelming I guess sort of kicks into that drive system activation where we just want to do it all and it feels really fulfilling and joyful and I guess you know like they say about gambling like stop when the fun stops it's you know I have to think about that's matter that way that a lot of it is just reward system you know kicking in so of course we don't have to be really judicious of what rewards we give ourselves and how we can switch off from that because otherwise there is a risk that you pursue purpose in a way that's not particularly purposeful and that's why I thought about when I created pause purpose play both as my podcast and as my my Facebook group around kind of letting go of the pressure of perfection um that you first need to pause to really slow down to think about what matters to you before you run ahead and, and go and follow your passions. Cause there's so much of this, again, toxic positivity of follow your dreams or you can be everything you, you want to be. And no, everyone can't be everything they want to be. And that's a reality check that we have to think about, is this going to be possible for me right now? Can I follow this passion without doing damage to myself or others? So that's why I kind of think about the, pausing element really important first to have an awareness of who you are what's going on in your life how can I act effectively then think about purpose that actually I step into that meaningful activity and taking compassionate action for myself and value-based action and then the play bit is where I then think about shaking it up a bit because so many people advocate purposeful business life but they forget about the play so all work and no play makes makes you a dull boy so to speak if anyone's watched the shining and yeah. you think about burn to a semi-crisp you know how far <laughs> away are you from kind of standing there with the axe um like <laughs> like jack nicholson so i don't want to see people get into that point so the playfulness is also about stepping into more of the joy and the hedonistic well-being that's not just about the eudaimonic well-being which is about our sense of purpose and, and contribution in the world, but also what is fun? What do you like doing? And it's almost shameful for a psychologist to admit that, oh, I had fun at work today. Like, how can you say that when you're helping people with their misery? But I have fun almost every day with my clients because I choose who I want to work with. I'm really well aligned with the people who sit with me and I have fun. 
and that's what makes my business sustainable why i don't ever feel oh that dreary feeling of getting up in the morning to go to work because i love what i do mm. but that's not just love what i do because of purpose but also because of play I love that message and I think there are going to be so many people that listen to this and then immediately subscribe to your podcast and come and join your group too because it just sounds wonderful and such a powerful ethos and a message that I think we all need to hear lots. <laughs> we do need it, we do need it and it's something that I'm trying to build for the for the next year again being conscious of how I plan my my time, I've just done a sort of nine to day planning a sprint where I sit down to write out the projects I want to work on. That means that anything else that enters my mind, because I'm quite a, kind of a, like visionary stuff. I am creative, I'm innovative. Whenever I get like a light bulb moment, I'll, oh, I want to do this. Is it on my nine to day plan? No. Okay, well, it has to wait then. So one of the things I'm planning for next year is to think about sort of balance of a burnout for, uh, for psychologists of how, uh, how we have ways of talking about this that are inner critic stuff and the imposter syndrome that hooks us away from putting work out there in a way that probably would be more meaningful so that we could pay ourselves accordingly and i'm not saying you know to to get the porsche and the the yacht and not that <laughs> stuff but to be able to take an hour out to go and do yoga without feeling guilty that's the bit that i mean when you think about building a, a purposeful business where you you balance your needs in with your clients' needs. Absolutely, absolutely. So that is in your next 90-day plan. <laughs> yep, that is not not yet. But I'm building lots of stuff. I'm building a 12-week, a possibly 16-week, will just depend on what the researchers suggest to me, um, course for perfectionism, which I'm uh, hoping to speak to some lovely, fantastic people about, um, some researchers, some CFT people in Portugal and Australia and speaking to a social psychologist um, about the uh, the pressures around us in the environment around us uh, the culture so what's on the rise around perfectionism so so it doesn't just become a treatment for you you are not the problem it's the society that is the problem so that's where i'm building art in the next 90 days and and hoping that that's going to be out and also promoting my my already finished online course the compassionate couple that is so exciting and I will certainly be watching your space. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, so I do have, before we finish, I know I've taken up lots of your time, but before we finish, I have a bit of a selfish question for you. Okay. Who, if I could get anybody, who would you like me to interview on this podcast? Um, I think, I think that would have to be Wendy Kendall because she's giving me so much wisdom around building a valuable psychology practice that has She's helped me work through my money mindset. She's helped me put my rates up. She's helped me step into the, the emerging brand. Because when I worked with her in business coaching, I, uh, I had a rebrand. I changed my, my business name. And she has helped me figure out how I want to work as a kind of building a thought leadership. So it would definitely be her. She's got so much wisdom to give other psychologists through her, um, the Psychology Practice Accelerator Program, the TPPA. I've actually been watching Wendy for a little while. Um, we were in the same um, like marketing um, course for a little bit. Um, and I've been meaning to ask her to come on here. So you have given me the kick that I Good. need. I should go and pursue her now. <laughs> Good, go for it. Yeah, if she doesn't get back to me, I'll ask you for an intro um, to try and get her to respond to me because that would be great. It'd be really lovely to have her on here. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Michaela. If people want to connect with you, where's the best place to come and find you? 
thethomasconnection.co.uk is my website, but otherwise you can also find me on Instagram on the underscore Thomas underscore connection. Don't know why I chose that handle. Um, or the Thomas Connection on Facebook or Thomas Connect on, uh, on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn as Michaela Thomas, as that is my name. But the easiest thing is just to drop me a message through, uh, through my website where you can just hear more about what I'm doing. And if you are interested in the Force Purpose Play podcast, you can find that on any podcast player. And the Force Purpose Play uh, group on Facebook is open to anyone who feels that they're high striving and busy and want to follow their ambition without drowning in it. So psychologists are most welcome. I've got quite a few in the group already. Absolutely fantastic. All of those links will be in the show notes for anybody who wants to look you up. Thank you very much. Thank you. Planning on launching something new? Hoping to reach more people and build a business that lets you live your values while avoiding burnout? Then you need to download my cheat sheet, 14 Steps to a Simple Launch. It's a foolproof process to make sure you develop your project with the people you want to help and then get it in front of as many of them as possible. It's totally free and you can find it at psychologist.drosie.co.uk. I'll put the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy. Therapy.